Uh, well, thank you very much, Kevin. Well, some people say this, that love is blind. You ever hear that before? I don't know what you would say love is if I give you a moment to put it in the, your head and fill out that phrase. Love is what to you? Uh, you don't need to tell me right now, but think about that. Love is what? For some of you, you might say love is missing. Some might be say love is confusing. Love is a longing I have that I'm not sure will be fulfilled. Love is what to you? I want to tell you a story. About 23 years ago, there was a young couple named Tim and Jen who got married. I happen to know them pretty well. And in the first weeks of our marriage, we lived in a very small apartment on the third floor of a home in Gap for $200 a month. Pretty amazing. And uh, I didn't ask Jen if I could share this story, and so I'm hoping that the joy and hope of Easter will carry through any trouble that may come as a result of sharing this story. However, it was, many of you know Jen, if you know Jen, you know that she's very good at making things, at baking, particularly desserts, and um, that becomes a problem for me in my life, but it's a gift as well. Well, in the first weeks of our marriage, she decided to make brownies, and we had an incredibly small kitchen, apartment-sized stove was in that kitchen. One of the things we realized is that the only way to make and bake a brownie like that is you have to bake it at whatever, 325 or 300, you have to lower the baking temp, but then you have to flip it to broil because just the dynamics of the oven doesn't work right. You can't bake it at 350 or 425 and have it bake. It just burns the bottom and leaves the top undone. So the only way to do it is to figure out the right way, right, to bring heat from the bottom and the top. So it was during dinner, uh, and just the two of us eating dinner, a little, little place, um, she put the brownies in, so we'd have nice fresh brownies on the back end, right, that, which was great. Well, midway through dinner, whatever, she flips it to broil, and then we get to talking, and we get to talking, and we get to talking. We're just lost in the love of each other's souls, staring into the gaze of each other's eyes. And then we smell something. And then we begin to see something. And we go over to the stove and open it up. And the brownies are not just burnt, they're actually on fire. There's a blue flame across the top of the entire brownie pan. It was pretty, pretty awesome. Now, here's the reality, and if I can use this as a metaphor of where I think we are as a society, is that we have come to the spot where all of a sudden it has snuck up on us that there is smoke in our room, that there is a smell of something that is wrong that is wafting through our culture. It is personal because some of us are struggling with depression and we didn't realize it, and all of a sudden we smell it. Some of us are struggling with a loneliness that is poignant now that wasn't a year ago. There's smoke in the room. Some of us are looking at the injustice in our country and saying there's smoke in the room, there is something wrong that needs to be made right. Some of us in our families are looking around at our marriages and saying this isn't the way it was designed to be and I didn't expect it, but all of a sudden it snuck up on me and it doesn't smell right, it doesn't look right, there's smoke in the room. And as I sat down there with Jen, we had our mauled and burnt, crispy brownie situation. And so what do I do as a young husband? We're a few weeks into this thing, and I said, it's going to be fine. We're just going to, let's just scrape the top off and the bottom <laughs> and maybe all the sides. <laughs> to which Jen was having none of it, and we threw it away. But what was my desire? Just as your desire would be, I am confident of it for your spouse as well. And that is this, to restore to restore what wasn't working, to put back in place what was out of place. On Easter Sunday this morning, I want to talk about love, a love that restores. 
Not only is love blind, and love is all the things maybe that you thought of, but I want to talk today about love that is designed to restore. To restore people, to restore our relationships, to restore our societies, to restore our hope in a future. Love is designed and built to restore. John, who was an early follower of Jesus, wrote about this restoration of love in his letter that he wrote called 1 John. This is where we've been for several weeks. I want to invite you this morning to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's no problem. Our Bible is in the pew near you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one. You can also open it up on your app on your phone or what have you. It's going to be a little hard to find if you're not familiar with it, which is totally fine. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible toward the end. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to jump into right away. So John is writing to this early church trying to help them understand what love looks like and what it looks like when love works in a community. And he says in 1 John chapter 4 verse 7, he puts it this way. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Great couple of verses, strong verses, and I wish that in an ideal world we could just do them. There's a lot of should going on in these verses. There's a, a I should love you, and you should love me. In fact, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say that I am of God, then this verse immediately puts a little bit of weight on you and a little bit of should on you. But I know that in talking with you and you in talking with me that love is not this easy, is it? You can't should your way into love. Some of you are struggling in loving the next generation, above or below you. Some of you are struggling in loving your family members, and for some, it's very complicated. This feeling that love should work meets a reality of life where our relationships are incredibly complex, and the shoulds don't really work the way that, if you will, they should. And so this is why I think John writes the next verses, to help us to see a model of what a love that should work actually looked like and looks like. And so this is why he writes in verse 9, a model or example. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. What a verse, what a message, what a truth that God did this for us. And then John goes further in verse 10 and defines love this way. He says, this is love. All right, if you want to know what all of love in the world is, here it is. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is a powerful verse. He's saying that God loved us so much that when he looked at our sin, what he did, instead of just blasting us, he decided to do something, and he sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That phrase, atoning sacrifice, actually is a single word in the Greek, and it's a word that I bet almost none of us have ever used, or maybe even ever heard of, in our entire lifetime. But we're going to learn a word today, okay, that you, I don't know if you'll ever use again, but I want you to know it. And here's this word, are you ready? Not a lot of enthusiasm in the room on that one, but we're going to do it anyway. Here we go. Here's the word, all right? Here's the word. The word is this, propitiation, all right? We're getting deep into it here this morning. This is that word. Now, how many of you have ever used that word in your whole life? Right, okay? Yep, that's right. So here's the deal, but here's what this word means. This word means this. It is the act of appeasing another person's anger by offering a gift, it's the act of appeasing anger by offering a gift. Now, you've never used the word, but you've done this. 
or you've seen it done. If you've ever seen a parent trying to appease a toddler or an infant who's screaming in the restaurant or in the back of the church by offering them a gift to appease their anger, propitiation. We don't know why the kid's screaming. It almost doesn't matter. But in the moment, they're angry. They need something to calm them down. This is the act of offering a gift to appease anger. In the ancient times, the ancients used to do this all the time and used to believe that the gods were angry if there was a flood or the gods were angry if there's some other crisis. And so people would be sacrificed. Hopefully not you, maybe a warring tribe and we'll go steal some people so we can sacrifice them to appease the gods. Anger. This is the idea of propitiation. Over time, as we became more enlightened, if you will, we began to sacrifice animals instead of people. As time continued to march on, today now, we just sacrifice, if you will, our ethics in this way. Here's what I mean. We make commitments or promises when we think that God is sad, angry, or mad with us. I remember as a young child growing up in Barbados, I would misplace my action figures sometimes. I had a solid collection of A-team figurines. They were awesome. That I would lose around the outside of our home for some dumb reason. And I remember as like an eight or nine-year-old praying to God as I'm walking around outside the home looking for these figurines. I'm saying, God, I promise to do whatever you want if you'll help me find B.A. Baracus. All right? I mean, it's as simple as that. Maybe that's why I'm a pastor today. I don't know. Right? But that's the reality. And what is that? That is me in the back of my mind, not realizing it, but thinking somehow there must be a God. Maybe he's angry or disappointed that we, that with me. Therefore, B.A. is missing. I must find him. I'm going to make an appeasement to him. Uh, he must be angry. I'm going to give him a gift. The gift is my ethical promise that in the future, I'll give to you whatever you want, God. If only you will help me find B.A. Baracus. We do this all the time right now, right? God, I promise if you don't make me get in trouble in this, I promise I'll never sleep with anyone again until marriage. I promise, I know I cheated that one time, but I promise I'll never do it again. Because I'm sure you're angry, but I just want to promise you I'm never going to do it again. And there's a fundamental belief within all of us that there might be a God who's disappointed in you, might be angry even, maybe, with you. And I think there's something right about that. Because we know, we know that God actually should be angry. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? Here's what I mean. If God isn't angry at injustice, then he's not God, right? Like, you don't want a God who doesn't care about injustice in the world, do you? You don't want a God who's angry and just going ballistic. But God isn't God if he isn't angry at evil and suffering and pain and wickedness, right? And so there's something that we all know must be true about God, and that is that he is a God who is an angry God. But he's angry at injustice, and he's angry at my sin and angry at yours because, not because he can't wait to zap you and me, but he's angry because there could be more. You're not designed, and I'm not designed to be in my sin. Therefore, just like when we see our children fail, we have a little bit of sadness, anger. Oh, I wish there was more. This is the anger of God. And God, instead of blowing us off the planet, says, you know what I'm going to do with my anger? I am going to sacrifice my son so that you and me don't have to bear the brunt of God's anger. And Jesus, God's son, becomes the propitiation for our sin. And it's appeased 
this is what I love, and this is what you love. See, propitiation is related to another word that we all know and we love. It's related to this world, this word, reconciliation. They're in the same word family. They came from the same place. Propitiation is meant to lead to reconciliation. It's an appeasement. It's a bringing together. It's a restoration. It's a making things right moment that God did in sending Christ for you and for me. And the net result of this for Christians is this, and John goes on to write it this way. In verse 11, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought, this is a legal term, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but, I love this, but, I want you to imagine this, but kind of, wait, no one has ever seen God, but wait a minute, but wait a minute. Before we just leave that, wait, it's almost as if God can be seen. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. It's almost as if John is saying, you've never seen God, but there's a possibility and a hope that there can be a community of people who can actually show God to one another by loving the way that they have been loved. Now, to draw this out, I want to tell you another story. This one is more personal to me, and I know that some of you know some of this story. Many of you don't know all of this story. But I have seen the gospel message that God looks at sin and evil with anger, and rightly so. But instead of zapping us with anger, sacrifices his son for us to appease, bring reconciliation. With kindness draws us, not with judgment drives us. In the past year, our family has seen this more than we ever expected we would be able to see. Some of you know, not all of you know, that last Father's Day, when Linda Stoltzfus went missing, we all, as a community, were praying for her and her return. But it was only weeks later when the FBI came knocking on our doors, the doors of my in-laws, that the message of what happened came home. And it's when I realized on a Friday that my brother-in-law is arrested, not sure for what yet, then on Saturday around 2 o'clock the news comes in across Lancaster Online that he's the one they're arresting in this community-wide pain that we have been in for the disappearance of Linda Stoltzfus. I, I, I sat down. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stand anymore. Um, I was at a loss physically. I had no words. I had no space to function. Uh, I was speaking the next morning at Grace Point, just hoping I could get through that. Nothing personal. That next day, the doorbell rang, and it was our Amish neighbor, Emma, walking up to the front door with flowers and her four kids and a cucumber. I don't even like cucumbers. And she gave this to me to give to the family. The rest of the family was out of town at the time. She gave this to me to give to the family 
because she knows what this is like. Unbeknownst to us, she was the school teacher at the Nickel Mine school shooting. And so when she came up and told me her story and told me that God is love in the middle of this stuff, and here's some flowers, here's a cucumber. I went back and I set those on my table and I looked at them like I had never looked at a cucumber before. A tangible expression of love in the middle of evil and pain. Because all of us were right to be angry that Linda was ever missing in the first place. In fact, I would question your humanity if you weren't, right? We wanted, and rightly so, restoration, reconciliation. Because it is right to be angry at things that are wrong. Emma organized for us a meeting, a number of meetings, but um, a few weeks later we had an Amish youth group show up at our place. Uh, youth, they stretched the term youth pretty significantly in the Amish community. There was a 50-year-old, a 50-year-old in that group. Nonetheless, there was about 25 or so youth who for two hours on a summer evening sang to us hymns as a family, about 15 of us stretched out on lawn chairs. Now, I'm not the biggest hymn guy in the world. I don't hate them, but I also don't necessarily you know, love them, but whatever, that it, be, be that as it may. That moment <clears throat> was both um, incredibly difficult and captivating at the same time. Why? Because what are you supposed to say at this point to people in the Amish community? If a thousand apologies would help, we would offer them, right? What exactly do I have to offer when we meet with Linda's parents or when we meet with the members of our community who have been deeply impacted by this or when the youth group comes over to sing to us? What exactly do I have to offer? What, what can I give you? Would, it, would $100 a person help take away your pain? What if I offered to, to mow your lawn for the rest of the year? Would that help mitigate the pain and loss that you felt? What, what, would, what would it take for us? Can we bake you a cake? I mean, how foolish, right, is that to even think about that? And so I sit there, I sit there on my lawn chair, both captivated by and very aware of the discomfort I am feeling. And the reason I'm uncomfortable and yet captivated is because I am experiencing a kind of undue kindness and mercy that I can do nothing for. What exactly am I supposed to do to earn their favor in this situation, right? What exactly am I supposed to do to make this worth their coming to me? I have got nothing and in fact, if I were to offer something, it would be so out of line, it would be terribly offensive. And so I sit there uncomfortably receiving the gift of mercy with no work in return, being forgiven for pain, seeing love restore relationships, seeing what John writes in the verses we just read, that if you love one another, it's almost as if people will be able to see God in you. 
And as I think about my experiences in the past year and our experiences as a family in the past year, I have never experienced the kindness and mercy of people and the kindness and mercy of God through them in as profound a way as I have in the past nine, 12 months. As I sit here and think about what John writes and what my experience is here even on Easter Sunday, I ask myself, is this not sometimes how we come to God? That sometimes, I don't know about you, but it is terribly uncomfortable to sit in a folding chair before God's mercy and have nothing to offer to him. But just as equally foolish as it would be for me to say to this Amish youth group or to Linda's parents or to the families who are impacted by all of these things, as equally as foolish as it would be for me to say, what can I, what can I offer to you as recompense? What can I offer to you to restore? So too, I need to say, and I want, <laughs> I want to invite you to consider church. Do we do some of the same to God because we're uncomfortable, equally uncomfortable, with receiving the grace that he offers? It is terribly uncomfortable, terribly uncomfortable to realize, maybe for the first time, that all of the great work that you do, all of the great legacy that you are going to leave, all of the great integrity and purity that you have committed to, the leadership talents that you have, it is terribly uncomfortable to sit there and realize none of that matters in that moment. None of it matters, and none of it can help you earn the grace that you are now receiving. It's a terribly uncomfortable place to be, but it's captivating at the same time. And church, if you have never seen the love of God in this way, if you have never felt deep in your own heart the love of God this way, an uncomfortable moment of sitting before him, I want to encourage you on this Easter Sunday, this is what it means when God sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. You do not ever need to make propitiation on your own. You can never, and I can never, promise up enough to God that our favor, his favor will be given to us in return. And so I want to encourage you, church, this morning with two things. Number one is this. I want to encourage you to sit in the discomfort of Jesus' love for you. If you, have never, if you have never been in that space before, I want to encourage you to take even just two minutes, four minutes, three minutes. You pick your minutes. I don't care. But to sit before God and forget all the church work you have done or all the church work you ever expect to do in the future, but to sit before God with a discomfort maybe that you can only realize perhaps through my story, of realizing, what in the world can I offer when I have so, our family has so offended? What, what in the world can I hold before you that could possibly merit your goodness? When we sit in that, it is incredibly uncomfortable and yet captivating and deeply renewing. And so church, I don't want you, I know you don't want you, to be people who just do, do, do for Christ for the rest of your life, as if we're making propitiation for our own sin. We can't and shouldn't do that. I want to invite you to sit in the discomfort of Jesus' love for you. And I also want to invite you this way, to restore with love and not judgment. 
to restore with love and not judgment, to look around at your neighbor, your friends, your peers, the people that you work with, those that you engage with, and consider goodness. What would a kind of love that restores look like here? How could a love for my classmate, a love for my neighbor, a love for my spouse, a love for my friends, so transcend judgment that when they see the love that I have for them, it's almost like they're seeing God. It's almost like they're seeing, wow, this is really uncomfortable. Like I was late for work for the last 18 years in a row and you still haven't fired me. Like what's going on with this situation? Like, wait a minute. I know that you guys value this ethic and I don't do that at all. And yet you, you are welcoming me like there's nothing wrong. Like what is going on with this? Wait a minute. Like, I know that you guys, you guys believe this thing, and I have never believed this. In fact, I'm rejecting this, but you're, you're so free with your grace and kindness to me. What's that about? Can you imagine a world like that? Because I'm convinced that the smoke, if you will, has gone through our community, that the smell of something burnt is in all of our nostrils. There's something wrong that we all want to fix the pain that we've been in, that we've experienced relationally, corporately, community-wise. And when we get up and realize that, yes, there is something wrong, we want to restore. And I want to encourage you today, God has already done the restoring work through Christ. He has already done it. And church, I don't want you to try to take up what Christ has already done for you. I want to encourage you to sit, to sit, in the discomfort of Christ's love for you. Then I want to encourage you to ask, what does love without judgment look like that the people around me can maybe see the invisible God for the first time through me? Guys, it's Easter. A beautiful day. Hope has risen. Love has risen. Christ has risen indeed today. Next week in When Love Works, we're going to talk about love and fear and how they interplay. Looking forward to that conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to drive us toward you. Drive might even be the wrong word. That you would draw us. That's probably more of what I mean. that maybe on this Easter Sunday for the first time, maybe ever in our entire adult lives, that we have been attending church forever, maybe brought in as a child, and our parents expect that we're always going to do this in the future, God. For those people, and that might be a majority in this room, I pray for us today that we could sit in the discomfort of your love for us, no matter our performance that this Easter Sunday, that we would look at this not as just another religious day or holiday to attend to, but that we can see maybe for the first time that all of the work that we do and all of the effort that we give is worthless to bring your love to us and sit in the discomfort of that, that we can see maybe for the first time and our soul may be touched for the first time and our heart may be renewed for the first time in a long time, that we really bring nothing to you, but that you have sacrificed everything for us. And so may our love for our neighbor 
not be our effort to please you, but may come from a soul and a heart that is deeply touched by the gift of unconditional love, a love that restores. Give us courage to sit in the discomfort of your love for us and to love without judgment. It's in Jesus' name.